Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Keith Banks is one of Queensland's most decorated police officers. He joined as an idealistic 17-year-old and worked undercover in the 1980s. In an era of corruption, often working alone with no backup, he learned how to merge into the drug scene, smoking dope and drinking with targets, buying drugs and then getting the dealers arrested. Keith turned down an offer to get involved in a corrupt plan and found himself sidelined from the drug squad. He was transferred to the Taringa CIB as a detective senior constable, but missed the adrenaline of working undercover. So Keith joined the tactical response group. He spent 20 years in the job before getting out in 1995. He since turned his hand to writing and published two excellent books, Drugs, Guns and Lies and Gun to the Head published by Alan and Unwin. Welcome to The Crime Couch, Keith. Hi, Rochelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell me, why did you join Queensland Police? I'm the classic, I guess, or fairly um, fairly common reason amongst a lot of people is I hated bullies. I was bullied pretty badly as a kid. I came from a dysfunctional childhood um, background with a, an alcoholic abusive stepfather. And I wanted to do something that would actually protect people from um, from those sorts of predators. Simple as that. Initially, Keith, you worked in Brisbane City and then the mobile patrols during the 1980s. Now, I remember reading in your book, your partner was Senior Constable Barry Grogan. Give us a bit of a word picture. What were those days like? Uh, working in mobiles was the best best uniform station I ever worked in. You worked with permanent partners, you were tasked with patrolling, stopping sus vehicles, responding to high pressure jobs, high urgent jobs, etc. But you also really encouraged to do a lot of criminal investigation as a uniform officer. All that was great, the hard work was great, but probably just as importantly, the camaraderie was brilliant. We had a ton of fun, um, we worked hard, we played hard, and that was even before I started drinking. Um, Barry Grogan was a uh, an interesting guy. He was an incredibly intelligent officer, um, quite irreverent, uh, didn't like wearing his cap, didn't like rules, and uh, and so just basically went to work to lock up bad guys. And uh, I learned a hell of a lot from him. In your first book, Keith, uh, Drugs, Guns and Lies, you say a great quote. These days, I realise that policing in 1980s Queensland was defined by contradiction. The corruption, yes, but also the conflicting attitudes in the force. What actually do you mean? Um, the corruption's been well publicised and we had a, a Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption in 87. I think it went for two years or just over two years. The corruption in Queensland was controlled by a very small cohort of people, but very powerful people. You know, the vast majority of men and women I worked with, and I say this as often as I can, were honest, straightforward men and women of integrity. The contradiction was that Working in an environment which was ruled by Joe B. Occupedison's very, very conservative government, 
meant that we had to work within, I'm trying to put this as politely as I can, very conservative government, yet a very corrupt government. Right? So the contradictions were we would drive past open massage parlours and prostitution was completely illegal in those days. We knew where the illegal casinos were, we could see the street walkers and we were told by um, the commissioner downwards that they didn't exist. So we were expected to control the streets and, and, uh, and um, control law and order and enforce the law and yet we were told and in fact instructed to turn a blind eye to the rest. Um, as a young uniform guy in mobiles, so I remember I was working the south side of Brisbane and there were maybe four or five brothels that we were told very clearly at roll call to stay away from, even though they were illegal because they were under the control of the, the vice or licensing branch. Very interesting times. What did working on the streets teach you, Keith? Good question. I would think a number of things. It gave me confidence that I didn't have before um, to, to deal with all manner of people. It taught me how to communicate. It taught me how to street fight. Um, back in those days, there were no tasers, extendable batons, or any of the toys um, or spray. We simply had um, a, a five-shot thirty-eight if you carried one, a set of handcuffs, and a small rubber baton. So you really had to learn how to look after yourself on the street. And that, that was that was an important lesson because Brisbane was a violent, violent place in the seventies and eighties and even nineties. I think there were a lot of Victorians, particularly some former members down here who take the piss out of me by saying that Brisbane was pretty quiet in comparison and, and that's actually not the case. Right. It was a very, very violent, rough town. But working on the street taught me to rely on my fellow officers, to give them the loyalty and backup that they deserved as well, and um, and how to really communicate from all levels. So talking to a junkie in the gutter and in the next 10 minutes potentially talking to a Supreme Court judge. They're the the examples of communication skills that police do learn. Taught me how to prioritise um, and uh, and really taught me how to be really well aware of my environment as well. All of those skills and that hyperactivity is what any any cop, regardless of their time or the decade in which they served, has to, uh, has to be aware of because if you're not aware of what's happening around you, you can get yourself badly hurt or worse, your partner. How were you introduced, Keith, into the undercover world? Because it's a big jump from the mobiles, I'd imagine. Yeah, I, I wanted to be a super cop from the time I first joined. Um, you know, and that's the, the flush of youth and the idealism of youth, I guess. I didn't know that undercover existed until I was in uniform one night and uh, was called to assist the drug squad with a, um, a situation that had happened in the city. And, uh, and they asked us to put their undercover agent in the back of our car. Up until that point, I didn't know undercovers as I said, existed, which is probably not a bad thing for undercover. <laughs> but um, as soon as I realised that that was a world that was completely different from what I'd experienced, I wanted to be in it. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was the excitement, the adventure, plus the, again, the idealism, um, heroin flooding into this country from the late 70s through the Mr Asia Crime Syndicate, or Terence John Clark, uh, was resulting in hundreds of ODs. And I think a lot of people either forget that or they weren't even born what was happening, I guess. But there were people dying in, in parks and public toilets all over the place through um, overdoses of heroin. And I just thought that was something I could do and do my part to, to try and fight the heroin trade, which I saw and still do as an evil, evil thing. Just give us a word picture of that undercover cop as he climbed into the car. How did he differ from what you look like? Oh, God, um, chalk and cheese. I, I, was, I was renowned for... Uh, 
<laughs> I was renowned for wearing my uniform very, very well. And, uh, and in fact, a few of my friends still take the proverbial out of me because of that. But this guy climbed to the back of the car. He had um, hair down past his shoulders that probably hadn't been washed for a couple of days. Dirty old runners, um, torn jeans, you know, daggy T-shirt. So he was really, looked like a typical street level bloke involved in the scene um, and until he climbed to the back of the car and uh, said g'day Banksy and I took two looks and went Jesus it was a, a cadet who was about 12 months below me at the academy so you know and I was immediately taken by that and, and I've got to be a bit um, I don't know honest with myself as well because you know it was pretty cool to think that you could go to work dressing how you wanted looking how you wanted after um what, two years in the academy with uh, paramilitary discipline and then three years on the road, wear, wear your hat, wear your uniform, you're told when to have dinner and all that sort of stuff. And this was just a whole new exciting world for me. Trouble was, I didn't realise, um, I guess, the personal sacrifices that it would take. Um, and, yeah, I went through that change pretty quickly. <laughs> Bank Vic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bank Vic's purpose is the same. To serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic get police because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash thecrimecouch. Bankvic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN 33087651661. In your first book, Drugs, Guns and Lies, Keith, you say, I always wanted to make arrests and help people. But if I was going to make a real difference, the best way to do that was by fighting drugs. So what was it actually like being in the drug squad? Again, um, yeah, that they, were, they were challenging days because I wasn't aware of the level of corruption in the police force itself. We'd heard stories. Um, when I say the level of corruption, I mean that those pockets of detectives who were fairly ruthless in, uh, in selling more drugs than we were taking off the streets, etc. So there, there was a component of that. Um, but the actual work undercover was brilliant because it was in a whole new environment for me. I'd come from the bush. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I did martial arts five days a week. I was your typical clean skin, you know, gung-ho young copper. And, um, and I changed that within, gee, three or four months. I was drinking. I was smoking dope. I was... Um, acting in ways and acting in identities that I never thought I would. And that, that added to the excitement of it all. I was 22, 22 years old when I started this. And, you know, and if you think back to what you were like when you were 22, you knew bugger all, really. Mm. And I was just so enthralled by the excitement of it all um, that I probably overlooked the societal changes or, or the change, the impact it was having on me and my friends. Um, because it was all about, yep, I'll put up with that because this is what we're doing. We're actually making a difference. Um, and it's funny, when the first book was released, an old, old colleague of mine who was an undercover that I first did a few days with and taught me a bit of the ropes because um, there was no training course, he, um, he gave me a call and we chatted about it and he said, look, you've said in your book that you worry that you know, we didn't make a difference at all. 
And he um, he said, no, quite the contrary. We've changed people's lives. We've touched their lives. You know, we did a lot of good works and never forget that. And that's been a really important component of my dealing with this as well. Um, it's easy, I think, when you're in the depths of um, post-traumatic stress or you are examining your life to actually think, gee, you know, I wonder whether I've contributed as much as I thought I would. And it's really nice for, for someone to reach out and say that. Mm-hmm. I like uh, your expressions. Like, um, what were your disadvantages initially when you joined Undercover? It seemed like at one stage you were saying you were almost too nice mm. and you needed a bit of roughing up. Was that right? That was spot on, yeah. I, I was so polite and nice and genuine, um, and I won't use the word, but uh, <laughs> one of my mates said you have to have a bit more of a, a, a character about you if you get my drift. And, um, and I found that really difficult to do because, I, you know, whilst I had a dysfunctional childhood to a certain extent, my mother taught me to be just be nice and be respectful and have manners and so on. And, um, and it was pretty hard. That was probably one of the hardest things to do was to change that personality mm. um, and actually become a bit of a prick. But once I got into that mindset, that was actually pretty enjoyable as well because that wasn't the real me. Um, you know, and, and one of my friends, Larry, who I've written very fondly about, um, who was undercover with me, compared it to being at NIDA on steroids. And as he said, though, something mm. like, if an actor gets a bad review, they get their feelings hurt. We get a bad review, we get a baseball bat around the head. So, you know, it's it's probably, in hindsight again, was a, whilst it was serious work, you know, you're spending your time with crims and bikey gangs and all that sort of stuff, it was a real boy's own adventure as well. Initially, as you were saying, um you didn't drink or smoke. In fact, you used to order orange juice in the bikey pubs. What else did you have to unlearn? Oh, lots of things. Um, and something as simple as knocking on a door. Coppers knock on a door loudly and stand to the side. That's that's basic operational survival. Drug dealers don't. Yeah. So that was and things like that. So. So well, how do drug dealers knock on doors? Very gently. Very gently. Yeah. Um, Walking into a pub and, and looking at all the exits and all of that classic police behaviour had to go. Um, you know, there's still, still, you still need to be aware of your environment, but, you know, I'd always just walk into a pub, go and sit down with my back against the wall because a lot of good drug dealers do that as well, so that wasn't unusual. But scope the place out with a bit without being obvious about scoping the place out. Um, right. Not, not having eye contact with people like a lot of police do, and I, and I do... Now that I've finished, I still have eye contact with people. So no eye contact. Just go about your business, you know, try to blend into the scene and then... Um, They're very hard things. Once you've got that in your DNA, it'd be very difficult to get that out of your system. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So what we do, I say we, the undercovers, and they were my tribe. There were only five of us at that stage. If uh, the drug scene was to be believed, they, they thought there were about 100 of us, but there were just five, and we'd, we'd do various jobs, change our appearances and so on. And we'd actually coach each other, you know. Um, so we became our own training team, I guess, and uh, we'd give each other feedback, and, you know, then we'd take the piss out of each other and so on, and, and sometimes role play. Or, um, you know, you might come, someone might come back from a job and say, shit, this thing happened to me, this is what I did. So you really... Um, sponged everything up or became a sponge I guess and soaked Mm. everything up Mm. and what became difficult for me later was when I left undercover was to revert to the personality that I had before I started but we're all irrevocably changed by that anyway so but you know to get back to be the nice guy from 
the abrasive one that I've become. In your early days, Keith, working undercover, you were transferred at one stage to Townsville where you got busted by armed some armed detectives, including a cop called Ferret. Can you just quickly go over what happened? Yeah, that was one of my first undercover jobs outside the metropolitan area. So I wasn't transferred. I was actually, we were just sent all over the place. And, uh, and I actually had a, uh, an undercover partner for this one, which was reasonably unusual. We'd driven up in our own car. Then those days I gave you false number plates, paid your mileage, but it's all a completely different world now. So it was, it was a bit wild west. Um, drove up there. Um, I did a shock absorber on the way outside Townsville, so I had to put the, the car in to be fixed. And we looked like bags of shit. You know, we just had the, the attitude, the hair, the beards, and, and particularly north of Rockhampton in those days, if you had hair longer than the collar, you were, uh, you were a target. You're a goddamn, you know, goddamn hippie. Um, so we went into town and, and we'd, we'd, um, we used to carry a, a few firearms because we had no backup. And, and everyone in, in the world in Queensland in those days had a gun. You know, mm. Guns were so accessible long before Port Arthur. You could walk into a Kmart and buy a two two three semi-automatic rifle. You could walk into a sports store and buy a pump-action shoddy. And, and in Queensland, no ID necessary. So everyone had a gun. So we had a, you know, I had a shoddy and a couple of handguns and whatever. And um, and I thought I'd clean the car out. Unfortunately, I'd forgotten a box of ammo. So the, the mechanic was um, was a friend of the local CIB. So he contacted them. And at the same time, they'd been told there were two hitmen coming into town. So they put two and two together and got five. And um, and then raided us. And uh, essentially, the door went in. And I ended up with uh, with ferrets thirty eight in my mouth. <laughs> and uh, and thinking, I hope his weapon handling skills are okay because his finger's on the trigger. And um, and he gave me a bit of a touch-up, as he probably should have, and if the situation reversed, I probably would have too. And all of these years later, we still laugh at it, but we became very, very good mates once he realised that we were undercover agents. And, um, yeah, it's not the preferred way to get into town because we prefer to fly in completely under the radar, but um, mm. meeting Ferret in those circumstances, and he was an honest cop, um, was actually a bit of a boon. You had to break rules basically to do your job. How difficult was that as a police member who gets taught the right way and there's a process and that process is very important as are the rules that you adhere to. So how how much did that go against the grain for you? Um, yeah, breaking rules. Yeah, there were a lot of rules we broke. Um, because we had to, you know, there, there was no, there was no official condoning of what we were doing, but it was unofficially condoned. And that, that was the eighties, you know, um, it actually became a bit of an adventure again to break the rules because I'd been so rule bound, um, all through my school life, my academy life, my three years on the road in uniform life that, um, breaking rules was actually kind of fun. And, uh, you know. Even simple little things like false number plates and you could just drive with whatever speed you wanted and do whatever you wanted, basically. Um, but coming down to drug use, um, you know, we were unofficially told that uh, if we had to smoke dope to, to get into certain circles, then, you know, come into the office and we'll give you whatever you need. So whilst that was completely illegal, it was common knowledge. And again, that's one of the contradictions. You know, um, there were certain certain detectives who you just walk into and go, I'm running a bit short, and they go, there you go, there's a half a pound of weed. Now, we use that recreationally once we started. For me personally, um, I remember I was smoking with uh, smoking with a pretty bad crook in Mackay. Um, I was looking to buy guns. 
and I got really stoned off and it scared the bejesus out of me. Um, and I came back and I was talking to the boys about it and they said, oh, well, the problem is because you're smoking dope with someone who's a target, have a, have a joint with us. And, uh, and that's when I changed my attitude towards cannabis because it became quite recreational for us and it was part of that team bonding as well. So, you know, if anybody is listening who's actually had a joint, you'll understand what I'm talking about when, when you sit with friends and you have a spliff and it's just nice and relaxing and conversational and, and then we talk about certain things. Mm. As opposed to, you know, for argument, standing in a Black Ulan's clubhouse and mm. uh, surrounded by patch bikies, you know, so. You spent a long time ingratiating yourself with major drug dealers like Ivan before arresting them. One of the things I th- found quite fascinating is you said, look, we couldn't ignore the fact that we like some crims more than certain police we worked with. You're blurring the boundaries so much. Was it ever, did you ever feel you were disloyal to the drug dealers? Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Um, a lot of drug dealers were pricks, so I had no problem in lying to them and betraying them and setting them up and so on. Not an issue at all. But I did meet some people who were pretty decent, and <laughs> that's a paradox, I know, but were pretty decent people. They were you know, family people, they had kids, they were fun, um, you know, common interests and so on. And you've, as an undercover, you've got to be, really be aware that what you're doing for a living is is lying and betraying. Mm. And as a human being, that's not a natural way in which to act. So, you know, it really became challenging. And, and there were a few operations at close where I, I felt pretty bad because as one of them actually said to me, he looked at me and said, I thought we were mates. You know, um, and there was a bit of me that was. So that that's a pretty challenging thing to deal with when you're a 22, 23-year-old mm. kid, when you still don't know what the hell you're all about anyway. Um, so in every undercover I've spoken to, without exception, says the same thing, that, you know, you're setting out to befriend and then betray. And, uh, and that had its psychological impact on quite a few of us, although in those days no one talked about it. Of course. And I love the joke in the police club was that undercovers were paid to be stoned. Yeah, that's right. So um, so as the rebellious little people that we were, and it may have been my idea, um, we said, right, we'll have a joint before we go up to the police club because we weren't supposed to be there. But you, you, you work long enough in undercover areas, you want to be with your tribe, you know, and we could get in there fairly safely. And generally, there are only other coppers in there anyway. But um, so we decided if that's, you know, that's the way they treat us, you're all paid to be stoned, you know, blah, blah, blah. We'd get stoned and, and go up to the club and and uh, and we had a $20 bet, I think it's 20 bucks each. Whoever could speak to the highest ranking member there when you'd had a joint actually scooped the pot, <laughs> so to speak. And who won? <laughs> yeah, I might have won. <laughs> so you then worked in the Gold Coast. You were sent up there um, on some jobs in, involving heroin. Mm. Now... What's the difference there dealing with junkies? What was the difference did you find? Yeah, junkies. So I started at the junkie or the street level with someone who was a user. And uh, through her, I, I worked my way up to some pretty substantial dealers. Junkies are unreliable. Um, they really exist for the next hit. And, and that's whilst, you know, that's portrayed in movies and TV shows, it's not too far from the truth. Um, you can't trust a junkie. They'll steal from their own grandmother. And that's why... Back to outlaw motorcycle gangs, um, in my day, they had a charter that didn't uh, accept people who used heroin. If you used heroin, you were bashed and thrown out of the club mm. because of that reason. You can't mm-hmm. trust a junkie. Mm. Working with them was um, 
you know, I really had to know my weights and measures. I really had to know what money I was going to make out of the, the heroin I was buying. I needed to understand um, the whole street or the whole um, drug dealing world, I guess, much more than buying weed. <clears throat> and I, ironically, I ended up as uh, most of my undercover career being a very good heroin buyer because my cover was I was a dealer. My cover was I was a dealer and didn't use. There was an expectation that people would use if they were, if they were moving the product, and a lot of them did. Mm. Um, but I just stood firm and said, no, nah, I'm in it for the money. And in that world then, standing ground and making that point straight up front um, engendered a lot of respect because good dealers prefer to do business rather than socialise. Whereas in the weed scene, a lot of it was socialising. Yeah. So for me, um, it became, well, it's what I wanted to be undercover for anyway, but it became not easier, but a different dynamic in setting up drug deals, executing the deal, then leaving, mm-hmm. not, not hanging around all day in a pub. Today, do you miss anything, Keith, about working undercover? No, that was so long ago that, um, you know, I had, I had my fun, I guess. Um, you know, and then I had another whole adrenaline journey after that. I miss the people. I miss my mates of those days, and, and unfortunately a couple of them have passed on and uh, a couple have fallen badly by the wayside. I, I'm still in contact with them. Uh, they've been complete casualties. You know, one of my friends became a heroin addict. Uh, another one went to jail for a couple of years because he was so psychologically addicted to cannabis that he wanted $400 to buy a bag. So he asked an offender, who's a detective on the Gold Coast, and he said to an offender he'd arrested for an assault, I'll go easy on the charge if you give me 400 bucks." And he went to jail for three years mm. did, and served too. Um, you know, so, so they're, they're the, I guess, casualties of that life that, that were part of the catalyst for me to start writing the stories. But about working undercover, I suppose, you know, it's, it's what do you miss about your 20s as well because we combine both. Just that, that freedom and, and lack of um, concern about the future and, and I guess the living in the moment. Um, I couldn't do that now. Finally, h- how do you reflect on that time now? I I look at that now and think, yeah, we did make a difference. We did contribute some change. Um, I can't believe that I was so young and I was doing what I was doing at that age. You know, my daughters are 26 and 23. And I look at them when they were in, you know, that sort of 21, 22 stage and just think, my God, no wonder my mother <laughs> worried about me and she only knew a tenth of what I did. Um and I reflect on the fact that, you know, the, the welfare wasn't there, the support wasn't there, um, and that we were just young men, and we're all men, there were no women in undercover at that stage. We're all just young men who were just basically, here's your money, here's your, your little pistol, here's your false plates, get out and go and, uh, and tell us when you've got some deals sorted out. You know, we could have been, well, it could have ended up in a ditch somewhere no one would have known. Um, so that's the whole paradox of it it was such a free and exciting amazing life to live but the support was not there and we were actually in hindsight we were means to an end Mm. so you know the undercovers were out there doing their job taking all the risks um, um, securing the evidence chain of evidence writing all the notes giving evidence in court you know of course and detectives would essentially come in with pinches on a silver platter and make their way to the next promotion and we were um, and I have to say it you know, I look back and with some cynicism, we were simply tools and we were, when our usefulness was up, we were kicked to the curb. Extraordinary stories. Um, in our next interview, Keith, we're going to talk about your time in the tactical response group. So thanks very much for sitting with me today on The Crime Couch. And again, lovely to be here. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me. 
I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.